Today I talked to Guy Ailing, headmaster at Mount Kelly in the UK. In this episode, I discuss elite performance programs, globalization and diversification of a school's brand, creating life-defining experiences for every child, plus what core values are important for every school. You're a strong supporter of a values-based approach to education. What does that really mean and why is that so important? Not just in education that I think it's important. I think any organisation can't really fully flourish without a clear set of values that are clearly articulated. Without values, I think uh, the purpose of what we do, and certainly the purpose of what we do in schools is enormously important, and our direction of travel, I think that can become confused and hijacked. In education, for example, I wouldn't say that our purpose is to make sure our pupils get the best academic results, however important that is. I think part of our purpose is to nurture individuals who will be able to go into the world and be happy and successful. And I'm a great believer that they need to be rooted in a value system to do that. And if they're not, it doesn't matter what A-levels they've got, they'll probably come a cropper. I think values speak to real deep truths as individuals and as communities and, and organisations. But from an operational point, as a headmaster, values, I think, are hugely important because they inform our decision making and leaders have to make decisions. That might be one way of finding what leadership is. And we're having to make some big decisions in very challenging circumstances at the moment and reminding ourselves of what our values are, I think, gives us that guidance. Yeah. What are the core values that you believe are critical for every student to conquer during the time at school and beyond? Um, it's interesting you use the word conquer as if values are difficult to overcome and, and they can be difficult to overcome. I rather like a line in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, where he said something along the lines of, even if you're not a Christian, but you want to be, act like one and you will become a Christian. And I think that that might suggest the element of conquering of values, that you have to act in certain ways, even if it's not necessarily intrinsic to you, but you then learn the value of it. But to get round to answering your question, I think the absolute root value that I think young people need to understand and, and live by is compassion. I don't think much can really operate in the world without it. Our dedication to the safety of our the members of our community at the moment during the pandemic is a function of our understanding of compassion. We don't do it simply to avoid lawyers. We do it because it is the right thing to do. That's the compassionate thing to do. And likewise, sort of operationally, communicating with parents in particular to keep them buoyed, keep them confident in what we're doing and to reassure them, again, is a function of compassion. We don't want people to spin off in all directions because we haven't given them the information they need to have confidence in what we're doing. And over the last 12 months, we've faced extraordinary times as a society around the world. How important have value-driven education been to making sure that students remain strong during this time, as well as teachers and parents? Because you talk about compassion, you talk about courage, you talk about humility, respect, commitment, integrity as part of the kind of the core values that sit at the heart of Mount Kelly. The last 12 months have been enormously hard. Do values play a huge part in making sure that people can get through this? I think so. As I said, leaders making decisions can be guided by their values. But if I can just sort of speak very personally about the challenge of the pandemic and also other challenges I've faced as a head, but this pandemic is one challenge that has been a very long, consistent challenge in its nature, if you like. You know, there are times when I've been tired and found difficult decisions to make, but I've read our values. And you mentioned courage. And I've said, you know, I have to be courageous in some of the decisions I make. 
And that courage has to be informed by compassion. And I have to show integrity in my decision-making, honesty to parents. So it has certainly impacted on what I've done. And I hope that the positive outcomes that we may have enjoyed as a result of that perhaps vindicate the value structure. And I have no doubt that in talking about our values to pupils, they have drawn and staff have drawn some strength from them as well at, at a very difficult time. Yeah, because values are very human centred. You know, there's, you know, what this last 12 months has shown us is that people have been suffering. We're all in this together. It's extraordinary. And I do believe that a value based model really helped people get through that because it grounds you, it anchors you in what's important. And, you know, we can get onto educational models and, and exams and everything else later. But it's a fundamental thing that I think has been important to see how everyone has managed to get through this because at the end of the day, we're all just people. Absolutely. And it's been very interesting being thrown onto our values, if you like, as not a last resort, but something that is non-negotiable, that can't actually be impacted by COVID in the way that it's impacting on our economy, doesn't have to impact on our values. It can actually magnify them and make them stronger. And I think what might happen in the future, I do think that we, we have the responsibility now to educate our children, not only to seek their own well-being, but the well-being of those around us. And I see that perhaps emerging in concepts such as stakeholder capitalism and that type of thing, where it's not just the creation of wealth, it's the creation of well-being for that individual, his or her family and everybody around him or her. And that's rooted in values, isn't it? It is about caring for those around you and understanding that we can climb out of a hole on a ladder, but it's best to use one hand to pull ourselves up and the other hand to pull up the person behind us. I think COVID has just proven to us the power of community and the power of looking after your neighbour and how important it is. Absolutely. Schools are obviously judged on results and measurable things. How do you show success and impact and measure this in terms of values? Because these are just soft skills. They are soft skills, and it is actually quite difficult to measure them, particularly when we have some quite blunt metrics, university entrance, getting into the job market and so on. But I would like to think the measure of the success will be best seen 10, 15, 20 years down the road when our pupils have not only got jobs, but they're doing it, they're doing their jobs happily and passionately and in such a way that lives out those values and that they are not only seeking their own financial and emotional well-being, but also sharing that with other people. So I think we have to, to a certain extent, have faith in the long game. We're not going to be able to judge these soft skills as we do A-levels, but sometimes, as we all know, you have to wait for things that are really valuable. And we have to wait to see the value of those soft skills in the later lives of the children who are in our care at this very moment in time. Is it possible to replicate a value-based education with your global franchise model? I think it is. It is. And, and certainly value-based education, what we might say is our in our philosophical DNA or fundamental to our educational provision, is what many of the local investors and local markets want. They do want, it's not necessarily they want Western values per se, but they want something a little bit more rooted than perhaps what they've got in their particular locality. So it can be transposed as a sort of DNA, but the caveat is you can't just drop a value structure into a pre-existing society that has its own 
preferences that has its own vagaries even. You have to be very, very sensitive. So for example, wanting to open a school in Saudi Arabia, I know some people have balked at that because of the the separation of boys and girls at particular ages. It doesn't fit their model of co-education. So there are decisions that you have to make about the local politics and the local society. And of course, you have to be careful with your values. My experience is it, it can happen and it can be a very, very enriching experience for all involved. You talk about a life-defining experience being delivered at Mount Kelly. I'm sold. I love it as a purpose. But how does that manifest itself beyond your values-based approach? I mean, if we approach it backwards, I I say to parents when they question me on purpose, I want the children here now when they're 40, 45, 50, to look back and say, I am where I am and the person I am because of the education I had. And I want that to be a positive reflection, not not one in which they're saying, I'm the bitter, twisted person because I had a terrible education. I want it to be very positive. So again, the life-defining education is something that we won't be able to measure till we're down the road. But having a purpose like that, that is aspirational. I mean, our purposes have to stretch people's imagination. I want our young boys and girls at the school to think, yeah, this is something that's going to set me up for life if I engage with it fully. I want them to take their eyes off their one foot at a time and look at the mountain that they're climbing and realise, yes, this education is going to help me get to the top of the mountain. Yeah, we talked about alumni and the importance of the long game. Do you track any alumni success to show that real life adult impact or is this something to work towards and it's always work in progress? I think it's always a work in progress because each alumni has a new fresh generation with different expectations and perhaps different skill sets or aspirations moving into them. That's the lifeblood of the alumni. We do a lot of work through our development office with our alumni because we do believe that tracking our alumni as a way of measuring what we do is one thing, but also providing a support and a network a lifelong community. The detractors will say that's just another expression of the old school tie. And I just think that's a slightly cynical way of looking at it. It is just a community. And we're back to that issue of communities rooted in values, sustaining itself through mutual support of members and so on, I think is a very, very positive thing. And if young people move into the outside world and they have shared a common experience, this life-defining education, then it makes sense to me that they stick together And I mean stick together in a positive way. They support each other. They don't exclude others from that support, but they support each other. So I think the alumni is very, very important as a lifelong support network. Yeah, and also to share the success stories, because ultimately, with such a broad statement of life-defining experience and being value-based and you're going, well, this will judge everybody when they become adults and go out into the real world. Actually, leveraging those stories that you have is so important because that, what that does is really important to reinforce values. Again, this is why it's so important. You're going to see it. Look at these great alumni. Look at all the diverse things that they're doing. They're, they're changing the world. And that must be pretty inspiring. Absolutely. And and many of our alumni are very keen to come back and talk. And they talk about the benefits that they had here that perhaps they have only understood later on in life. They generally don't come back and talk about, I'm successful because I squished somebody's head to get the promotion and now I've got lots of money. They talk about 
the resilience that they learned when they were stuck in a nasty storm in the middle of Dartmoor. That's what they talk about. And then the pupils think, well, you know, that was me last week. So yeah, maybe that's why we're doing it. So we learn how to get through a problem. So yeah, digging into those deep well of alumni experience is hugely important. And the fact that they want to share that shows that they want to give back. They see the value of giving back and nurturing and enriching the education that our youngsters have. Of course, it's their world soon and we need to prepare them for the challenges that are out there. Absolutely. So do exam results and league tables matter at all? I think they absolutely matter because parents think they do. It's rather like the issue of class size. You know, there's no pedagogy that suggests a small class performs better than a big class. It's all about quality of the teacher. But parents generally think that small classes are better. Therefore, the independent sector has responded accordingly. And many of our parents are very grounded and understand holistic education and how important it is. But it is unfortunate that the way we've moved in terms of accountability that we've seen just ride like a tsunami through education in the last generation. I think we're pulling back from that. I think we're beginning to understand that empowering teachers at Coalface is the most important thing. But yes, ultimately, the most measurable thing that you can do at the end of a child's career is their A-level results. So it's going to carry some weight, just as long as we understand that a C grade for a child who never thought they'd do A-levels is as good as an A-star as somebody who went to Oxford and Cambridge, and that we understand that success in life is not just about those academic results. It's about all of the other stuff that we've spoken about, all of those soft skills. And that's what employers, and that's what the real world is looking for, is looking for the individual. We talk about skills, and it's not just soft skills, it's some of the harder skills, you know, it's a skills-based education. But we're just in an outdated educational model that we have to get to these milestones as a prerequisite sort of entry into higher education that maybe in itself is not fit for purpose and not what employers are looking for. There is probably still lots more, and maybe this is the perfect time for us to, to shake it up because we've been forced to do things differently. I've got no doubt we've got a fantastic, almost once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that's been presented to us by the pandemic, and an awful tragic medium it has been, of course, to rethink education. I mean, we are talking about education in ways that we haven't talked about before, and I'm not talking about all technology and digitalization and so on about the two fundamental pillars in education. What do we teach? What should we teach our children? And how should we teach it? We've got a a real opportunity to position our schools, I think, for the demands of the future. And I think, though, tragically, it's only really the independent sector that will be light-footed enough to move into this new world quickly. I do think what has happened to the maintained sector over the last generation, where there's been so much dictation and law almost, In the maintained sector, they will probably just automatically return to what was done before the pandemic. That's not to say that teachers at the coalface and leaders within the maintained sector cannot see what needs to be done. It's just we have an overburdened structure in Britain when it comes to education that's outdated. But there is an opportunity to rethink it. And the independent sector is really in pole position to make that difference and make that change. I really, truly hope that, you know, over the coming months and years that we really do see it and we haven't just gone back to our old ways. Again, it's innate human behaviour. It's just it's we revert to type and we go back to what's comfortable and what we used to because change is difficult. But we need leaders. We need leaders like you to grasp that and absolutely deliver it. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. 
We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. I'd like to talk to you about globalisation and schools, such as Mount Kelly, who have franchised or licensed their brand overseas. What are the benefits to you as the main school here in the UK, other than the obvious big check? The big check, obviously, we have to develop income streams in the independent sector because it's a very challenging market out there. But there's a lot more to it than that. Being at the centre of a family of schools or just being in a family of schools, I think is international schools is another articulation of something we've seen in the independent sector for probably a good 10 to 15 years. And that's increased collaboration, confederation, mergers and so on and so forth, which, of course, protects us commercially a little bit more, but gives loads of opportunities for sharing, sharing structures, sharing good practice, pedagogy, staff exchanges, all of these types of things, which I do think enrich the experience. And we, we've we certainly now begun to make more of that in terms of the deeper, richer benefits of having an international portfolio rather than just the issue of opening up income streams, which themselves can be fickle. I mean, the other, I suppose, international global view of education is you set up the EtonX model, where education is actually the driver, not campuses or or necessarily trying to fill the classic bums on seats, but in places that have a demand and a market for them. Did you ever explore that option? Yeah, it's very interesting what's been done there. And and I think it perhaps is a prelude to what may happen in education more broadly in the next 10 to 15 years. And that is that schools become hubs of learning where they are at the centre of a provision with multiple providers, some of whom are remote and pupils dip in and out of the physical school whilst accessing other courses. I do think that that is going to happen a little bit more. But I also think there's a great appetite for conventional schools, the physical environment in which children can mix with their friends and socialise. We really miss that. And I think, therefore, there will still be a very, very strong part to play for schools in that. But that doesn't mean we don't look very carefully at what we teach those children when they're in the school. And do students in your international schools get the same true Mount Kelly experience? They do, and increasingly so. We're making a far more conscious effort to do that. For example, we share a purpose and a great deal of structure with our school in Hong Kong. They've got a very similar uniform, if nothing else, but there is more. We've a very strong emphasis, for example, on physical activity and the great outdoors. The classes meet each other remotely. And our Hong Kong pupils come over or have the opportunity to come over to the mothership, if you like, every year. And I would love to have a family of schools whereby uh, children in each of the schools, wherever they were around the world, would have the opportunity to study for a semester in a different part of the world. That would be a wonderful model. Some schools sharing DNA and experience, I think, is important, but can only go so far. Is there a saturation point in all of this? So schools are so big and global that it creates new problems. Definitely. I mean, saturation is a natural phenomenon in most markets. What we have seen is the exponential growth of franchises, particularly in mainland China. And one wonders whether or not that is plateauing or coming to an end. And it may plateau or come to an end 
as much to do with Chinese government intervention rather than free market economics. And of course, the awakening to remote provision and its potential. Any organisation, or we're talking about schools, any school that becomes global and, and grows and grows is going to experience problems, not least, is the need to constantly recruit a growing number of quality staff from a very limited pool. But once again, I think, I really do believe strongly that the independent sector, because of its independence, can respond quickly, which might conceivably mean closing some of their schools overseas. Yeah, absolutely. Would you recommend more UK independent schools open campuses abroad? I would, if they have... Uh, local partners who will make it happen well. I mean, schools need local partners and investors and they need people who aren't cowboys who do have a love of education and want to build an educational legacy over a long period of time. Also, the school itself that's interested needs to have the resource, not necessarily financial, but certainly time because projects like this can take a great deal of time. That said, though, it's interesting to see what other opportunities have been blown wide open by the pandemic. And as I've referenced before, the awakening to the potential of remote provision with a much lower cost base and a much greater scalability may be another death knell for the growth of overseas schools. Yeah, but then it goes into your comment earlier about, you know, schools, you still need social spaces. Kids need to hang out. They need to be with other kids. They still need human interaction. But I think there's a bigger, more altruistic view that, you know, we're trying to impact education as a whole. And obviously the the side of independent schools is it's for the few and the privileged. And all we're doing is extending that because it's market forces dictate it. But you're right. I think the pandemic has shown a side of online provision that will not shift. But we've also seen the negative side of it where kids mental health, too much screen time, you know, they're missing the social piece. And so we haven't got it right. But this has been a great test bed for us to go, look, we've got a lot of pieces up here. We've almost trialed it here. Now, how do we move more towards maybe an ETNX model? But you need to facilitate these local hubs and schools where kids need to have social time to learn those soft skills because you don't get them like this. You're not going to get them. Absolutely. We go back to the idea of the school as a hub because I think it's a false dichotomy to say you're either in school or you're learning remotely. It can be a blend. And we could, if we're selling our remote learning, we could not just focus on the school refusers, if you like, but focus on the very capable child who in Beijing does very well in school from seven in the morning till five in the afternoon, but then wants to do A-level physics in the evening. And so they therefore have the best of both worlds. It's this sort of pick a mix. education. Pick a mix. <laughs> exactly. That's what I, I was going to say, uh, a sort of menu of educational opportunities but actually, I much prefer the idea of pick and mix because uh, it reminds me of a sweet shop. Exactly. But that sweet shop, you know, unfortunately went bankrupt. I remember going to Woolies and that, that was the pick and mix place. It was. Um, it, was. it just shows a business model based on pick and mix is never going to <laughs> um, But I talk a lot around the future of education, future schools, and, that, and that's a big driving point for me is to kind of look at the super teacher, to look at pick and mix education, where it becomes more skills focused. You know, people can change direction. What I wanted to do at nine years old is very different than what I want at 13 years old, 16 years old, 18 year old. So you start to look at this and go, well, okay, how do we start to navigate this? You know, and I want to go, well, I have all these skills. You know, I've learned all these from whether it's Mount Kelly, whether it's from Eton, whether it's from Harvard, wherever it is. And then I can go, actually, now I want to go and do this. So you want to become a lawyer. Okay, well, what do I need to become a lawyer? I've got all these great skills already. Now, how do I go and do it? Again, it's great having the conversation to see that other people are really thinking that way. It's great that we're thinking that way because it, it actually may help us 
deal with an issue that I've always found with pupils to be a bit of a problem. And that is they've often got a very clear idea of where they want to end, but they have no idea how to get there. They're rather like Victorian explorers always looking towards the horizon and sort of missing the alligator at their ankles. And I think having a conversation where we have a greater choice, if you like, a menu of educational options that we can clip onto the pupil to get them to, in the example you gave, to become a lawyer. It is all a very healthy conversation. Yeah, I'll have to get you on our, I have a kind of a global group of heads and we talk around this a lot around the future of education, the future schools. Mark Steed, I think he actually was a, was a teacher he was, he was at Kelly. Ex-head, yes, indeed. Esteemed head. I walk underneath his uh, portrait most days. Oh, funny. Yeah, I was, I was chatting to him last week when he was coming off his three-week quarantine before going back into Hong Kong. But I want to talk to you about co-curricular because schools always say that they have an outstanding co-curricular offer. You run a program for elite swimmers. Why did you set this up and why do you think you're so good at it? Well, we set it up. It was back in 1978 with the building of a pool and the creation of a dedicated coaching staff. And I think it was a marketing issue. It was the way of recruiting pupils. Schools need to be good at stuff. And I don't think we should be ashamed of seeking that excellence in, in and creating niches in particular areas. So the early days in the, the late 70s and early 80s were, were helped, of course, by a certain Sharon Davis, who was a former pupil who did very, very well. And we've had a great deal of success in our swimming programme. We've got over 30 Olympic Commonwealth and Paralympic medals. But the real gear change came about four years ago when we opened a 50-metre swimming pool. And that doubled the size of our squad, doubled, I think, the quality of the squad to a large degree. And we've gone on to win the top competition in, in club swimming. And it is a driver in our provision. There's no doubt about it. And a lot of those elite swimmers won't necessarily fall into your family bracket of typical independent school parents. So you must have to do a lot of partnership and community outreach to find the best swimmers who fit the value-based model you also have at Mount Kelly. Yes, it is very interesting that many of the swimming families did not have independent education factored into their budgets, first and foremost, but also in their mindsets, they weren't necessarily traditional independent education buyers. But I would say the traditional education, independent education buyers are a thing of the past. It's a very, very different demographic now that is coming to our schools, I think. Certainly, having very clearly articulated values and an ethos and so on, we share that with all of the pupils, not just the swimmers, when they're applying to the school, that they know that they're coming to a school, in the case of the swimmers, that is a school with a swim programme and not the other way around. And we do work very, very hard to ensure that the swimmers come here and not only get some of the north of 20 hours a week of absolutely quality coaching in a 50 metre pool, but they're taught very well in the classroom and they have the opportunity to take part in the wider school life because we want to produce very, very good swimmers. But we know that the vast majority of our swimmers will not be Olympians. They're going to be doctors and lawyers and community leaders and focused on, you know, going back to that point of that sort of communal well-being, if you like. So they need to drink deeply of those values as well, because swimming is all very well, but success in swimming is a mirage for many, as it is in all elite sport. There's a huge amount of the training and the setup and the mindset that you bring with offering elite anything that is surely going to benefit lots of pupils because it's a real step change between being a really good amateur and I was a really good amateur hockey player right? I represented England schoolboys I was great all my friends around me went off and represented Great Britain in the Olympics I didn't I hit 17 18 
pubs, girls and appetite and the thought of that extra commitment was something I didn't have and I didn't have the structure in place and maybe that could have turned out differently. Do you see that as being a big driver? Is You need the right people in place and the right elite training structures to get that step change. Before I answer that, I'll say I'm sure, though, even when you discovered discotheques and girls and whatever it was, you probably carried on playing hockey at a social level for many, many years. And I'm still you, playing. I still captain. And, and that, that, to a certain extent, is the most valuable lifelong gift we can give to children when they learn sports. Again, the sort of elite end, which is worthy in its own right, absolutely worthy in its own right, would sometimes distract us from what we do for the vast majority. And that's just give them a love of sport and that they will carry on doing it for the rest of their life and continuing to go to discotheques or whatever it is you do (laughs) with your hockey mates. You know, that's a really, really important gift. Back to your point. I mean, it really is elite sport. I mean, I, I worked at sporty schools before and there were elite sportsmen there, but swimming is an incredible sport when it comes to elite performance, not only in what needs to be done to get up to standard, but, you know, a whole season can turn on a hundredth of a second. It's not like rugby, an elite rugby player can miss a tackle, but he just has to get up and run faster and make another big tackle. And then everybody's forgotten the one that he's missed. Something goes slightly wrong or somebody does something slightly better than you in a swimming race, and that's it. It's done and dusted. Your season's over. So, I mean, I've been just absolutely amazed at the dedication. These kids are in the pool, sometimes half past five, six in the morning before they have a full day's lesson, and then again in the evening. And they're doing two hours of swimming up and down and focusing on the minutiae of technique. And then they spend time. We have a very big team to actually squeeze out those hundreds of seconds. We've got eight coaches, managers, strength and conditioning coach, physio, sports psychologist on the books. All of that in order to service these elite aspirations whilst at the same time keeping these children very grounded and understanding that they're at Mount Kelly and enjoying the Mount Kelly education is hugely important. Yeah. And that step up from being good at something. So I had really good, inspiring sports teachers, but they were were doing it on a passion rather than, you know, you think about what you've just talked about, that team you get set up. I mean, it's a professional setup. It's what you get at a Premier League football club. It's enormously professional. And our director of swimming here, Emma, was an extremely capable swimmer herself. You know, she performed at senior level at international competitions. She has that passion, though. You know, that passion is not lost in the minutiae of the technical bits and bobs and so on and so forth, which is important. She has enormous drive and the kids, you know, lap that up and the rest of the team also just live and breathe swimming. But watching, going to swimming meets, which I never done before I became headmaster here, was a real eye-opener, not just in the dedication, but the whole team dynamic, how they support each other. It's a deeply individual sport. You know, once you're in that pool, there is nothing anybody else can do for you. But all of the preparation before, the words of encouragement, bits of advice that the pupils are generating amongst themselves. And then, of course, the fantastic response when as a team we win something. It is a sight to behold. It is absolutely inspirational. And to see what these young people are committing to their dreams is really something I've only read about. It's great to have that as part of a school. And I think many, many other heads will be very envious of the fact that you can go off and enjoy not just the success, but also just seeing the the way that they train and work so hard to achieve the success that they do. I'm going to wrap up, though, with maybe a pondering question for you around elite sports. Are there any other areas you're thinking about making elite at Mount Kelly? 
sailing maybe, as you have your own 50-foot pilot cutter called Olga, and you've got close access to the sea. Is the next Ben Ainsley at Mount Kelly? Well, well, possibly. Uh, I mean, certainly it's part of our provision to make sure that all of our pupils have an opportunity to sail on Olga. She's a beautiful boat. But we, we certainly do want to look at the template of elite performance in swimming. We're using that template to create a girls' football programme in partnership with Chelsea. In fact, we've just started that. And we'll actually, next year will be the first year where we actually have a Mount Kelly-Chelsea football team. So we've learned a lot from swimming and we want to put that into football. We, we are looking at other things, tennis, uh, for example, But I would go back to my point, not like you, I was a very mediocre sportsman, but I got an enormous amount out of it. And I think rather than talking about elite, in fact, we're beginning to drop words like high performance and elite. Swimming is just a sport we do particularly well, but it's a sport, just like the sports where we perhaps might do slightly not as well. And I think we need to understand that it is sports, that everybody can be involved. It has to be inclusive. It has to be accessible. And if within that matrix, if you like, we can service a high end with huge, hugely impressive aspiration, then then so be it. But we don't want it to be a separate part of what we do as a school. Guy, thanks ever so much for your time today. It's been enormously inspirational and enjoyable. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.